Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, and uh, we can take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word and put aside all those worries and frustrations and cares and all those things that uh, start invading our thinking about two seconds after I start teaching. And uh, we can focus on the Word this evening because it's God's Word that He uses to really strengthen us and encourage us and get us through all those distracting things. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we realize that there it was a plan in your thinking from eternity past that in your omniscience you always knew what you were going to do. You always you, you, you knew everything instantly, simultaneously, intuitively. Father, we know that in your plan you have revealed your word to us in the wisest and most righteous way possible and in the progress of revelation that you have uh, taught us about sin, about man's relationship to you, about the problems that hinder man's relationship to you, and how you have solved all the problems, uh, especially when Christ's work on the cross is completely sufficient and is the uh, final sacrifice and takes care of all the guilt, all the problems with sin such that redemption is accomplished, forgiveness objectively in terms of the cancellation of the debt is accomplished, and that the only issue that is important is our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him and his work on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. Now, Father, as we continue this study in Hebrews 9 and on into 10 that we I've come to a greater understanding and appreciation of all that you have provided for us and all that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, last time we came up to about verse 11, but I want to go back and just give us a little review because it's actually been about four weeks, I think since our last session on January the 1st, and in between I was in Kiev. And by the way, I do have some pictures um, of the trip to Kiev. I'm trying to dig around and find the one I had of Igor and, uh, and Yulia. And as soon as I get that located and posted up on the uh, uh, website, then uh, we'll send out the link to that, and everybody can see the pictures from, uh, from those, the, my two weeks there. Okay, review. One thing that we looked at was the procedures on the Day of Atonement. And more and more I'm appreciating all that is in the Mosaic Law in relation to these rituals and realizing how uh, we have not always done our homework in trying to understand all these details because there's just this sort of mentality that somehow that's in the Old Testament or it's in the law and so it's no longer as important or as relevant or as significant for us. But it really is because God is picturing a lot of the different dimensions and facets to salvation and to the spiritual life uh, in that Old Testament, uh, those Old Testament sacrifices and in the Old Testament ritual. And then when you get into the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is unpacking 
that, that imagery and that symbolism for us so that it gives us a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And it's not just a matter of explaining the historical events of the cross or explaining the theological significance of those events for our salvation, but it's all incorporated within a, a future perspective. If you've opened your Bible to your Bibles to Hebrews 9, just look down at verse 28. We're not going to get there probably for at least two or three more weeks. But as we come to the conclusion to this uh, instructional or doctrinal section before we go on into the application section starting in chapter 10, the sort of a conclusion that he comes to is in verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, that is a future orientation. That what he's going through here and all that he's been covering in this section starting back in uh, chapter uh, chapter 7, uh, dealing with the Melchizedekian priesthood, dealing with the, uh, uh, the new priesthood in Christ, the change of covenant, the fulfillment of the Old Testament types in the priesthood of Christ and the new covenant, and then on into chapter 9 dealing with the uh, significance of the tabernacle uh, worship and the rituals and how that's fulfilled in Christ. All of that really is oriented to the future. It's not just history. It's not just nice information that we need to learn. It's all interested. It's all oriented towards that future return of Christ to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And there's that word soteria uh, or soterion, which has to do with not just justification salvation, uh, at the cross, which we refer to as phase one salvation, but it is looking forward to phase three salvation and the completion of God's uh, salvation plan for not only mankind, but also in terms of the uh, redemption of the universe, as per Romans chapter 8. So keep that in mind, that that as we go through this, it's, it's oriented to understand the past that we can orient more uh, to our uh, future destiny. Now, we looked at the uh, procedures on the Day of Atonement. I talked about the fact that the key idea in, it, in the word atonement isn't just reconciliation or atonement, which the English word uh, would seem to communicate, but it is a broad enough word to where it incorporates all of the different doctrines related to redemption, that is, substitution in the uh, blood sacrifice, propitiation, the application of the blood to the mercy seat and the satisfaction of God's justice and righteousness, uh, forgiveness, that is, in the objective sense of forgiveness, the wiping out or canceling the, of the debt of sin, as we saw again in our study uh, Sunday morning in Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 13 and 14, uh, also expiation. All of this is tied up in that word for atonement. We saw that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest did, did three things. There were the sacrifices for himself and his family, that is the Levites, so that he could be cleansed to perform the service uh, on that particular day. Following that, there was the sacrifice of the sin offering and the burnt offering, and the splattering of the blood from the sin offering on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, depicting propitiation, and then the identification of sin with the scapegoat, the taking of the two goats, and one would be sacrificed, and the other was then taken off uh, out into the wilderness, picturing that complete removal of, of sin that takes place uh, with the uh, canceling of sin on the cross. So those are the, the procedures on the Day of Atonement, which we have to keep in mind. Second thing we emphasize is that redemption is used in two senses, just like forgiveness is. And they're tied together. And I keep going over this, and some of you, maybe all of you, have snapped to this very quickly, 
but I've had a number of conversations with pastors who are trying to communicate uh, this as well, and it's, it's a new thought that redemption means payment of a price. And we're, we're so ingrained in terms of thinking of forgiveness only in the second sense of fellowship and that removal of personal animosity or the breach of rapport, the breakdown of a relationship, that we, we have lost sight of the fact that a core meaning to the word forgiveness is to wipe out something, to just erase it. And so it's, it's used in an economic sense. And so both redemption is viewed as an economic term, the payment of the penalty, and forgiveness is the cancellation of that penalty. And that's the core value of the idea of forgiveness, whether you're talking about the Greek word aphiasis, which we looked at uh, Sunday morning, or its parallel, charizomai, which is used in passages like uh, the parable in Luke 7, which deals with the forgiveness of a debt. So those are both used in economic uh, context. So there's an objective sense that Christ uh, pays the legal penalty on the cross. And that legal penalty is what God assessed in the Garden of Eden, when he told Adam and Eve, the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That is the legal uh, penalty. All the other things that are mentioned in, in chapter 3 are consequences, uh, including physical death. But Jesus pays that objective penalty on the cross, and then redemption as well as forgiveness are used in a subjective individual sense when a person trusts in Christ. And when they trust in Christ, then they are said to be redeemed because they're realizing that in their own experience and they are forgiven positionally. Uh, as uh, And then we also talked about the third sense of forgiveness, which is uh, forgiven uh, ex- uh, experientially in relationship to God. So we've talked about redemption in those two senses. And this really comes out of understanding Colossians 2, 13 and 14, that we were, we were dead, although you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having our, the causal participle there, because he forgave you all trespasses. This occurred at the cross. He's able to Make us alive because he has already forgiven you of all trespasses when or by means of wiping them out or wiping out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. And he has lifted that, that certificate of debt, out of the way by nailing it, participle of means, by nailing it to the cross. And that last phrase really shows us that this happened historically at the cross. It's a judicial action. So we should could refer to this as judicial forgiveness that happens at the cross for every human being so that sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue is going to be uh, Jesus Christ. Third thing we have emphasized is that the purchase price, the price of forgiveness, is Blood, which is a figure of speech for death. We have blood standing for physical death. The shedding of blood for stands for physical death, and then that in turn stands for spiritual death. And we saw that that is uh, referred to as a uh, double metonymy or a metalepsis. It's a figure of speech, and it doesn't take away from the reality or the necessity of Christ's physical death, but that the key element in satisfying God's justice was that spiritual separation from the Father between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father imputes to Jesus Christ all the sins of the world. And it doesn't mean that Jesus becomes a sinner, but he becomes sin legally that is imputed to him, but his, his righteous status is never experientially changed. He doesn't become a sinner He just becomes sin, that imputation of uh, our sin to him in a legal 
uh, a legal transaction that takes place uh, on the cross. So these are three things we have to keep in mind as we go through this whole latter section because it's built, all of this from verse 11 down into um, probably down to 10, close to 10, 18, we're going to be dealing with these these concepts. We have these terms like remission of sin and redemption and covenant, uh, blood, again and again and again. Uh, these terms are mentioned, so we have to understand them. The next thing I did was uh, last time based on... Uh, Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that this shows progressive revelation. The Holy Spirit indicated, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made clear or manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, there's a progression of revelation that occurs such that Old Testament saints in key areas did not understand things the way they were understood later. There is a progress in revelation. That doesn't change anything. Later revelation doesn't change earlier revelation. It unpacks it. It gives clarity to it, focus to it, but it doesn't change what was previously said. So we uh, took a good look at, at that. Now, verse 9 says, It was symbolic, that is the ritual in the tabernacle, was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Now, what that, that word perfect is one that we have to understand, and it doesn't have the idea of flawlessness. This, this word group, I think I have it in a slide a little later on because the word shows up again. This word group that is translated here we go. Perfect is a group of words that occur. You have the verb teleao. You have the noun form uh, telos, another noun form telios. These words, with one possible exception, never refer to a qualitative state of, of flawlessness. And yet that's how traditionally the, the word has been uh, has been understood. It really has the idea of completion, of wholeness, more of a quantitative sense than a qualitative sense. It is not talking about perfect versus imperfect. It is talking about uh, complete. And so the sacrifices are incomplete. They are not flawed in a sense of sin, they are not uh, ineffectual. There is a degree of, uh, of significance to them. They do accomplish something. And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered. And I made the point last time that this is a present tense action here. Now the writer of Hebrews is writing this to a group of uh probably uh, former Jewish priests, Levites, who have become believers and have gone through, as we'll see in the next chapter, they've gone through uh, persecution, rejection, hostility, because they have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And they are, uh, they have left the whole temple worship, but now they're thinking about going back. Well, in verse 9, uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that these current gifts and sacrifices that are going on in the temple are irrelevant. Uh, it's not saying that they're no good, that they uh, have no meaning or purpose, which it would be a great opportunity for him to do so. He says they were symbolic, that is, the Old Testament uh, sacrifices were symbolic for the present time, in which, that is, in the present time, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, but we're not talking about, he's not talking necessarily about sacrifices related to uh, salvation. But, uh, and I think of Paul. When Paul goes to Jerusalem 
and he has made a vow and he's going to bring a sacrifice. That vow sacrifice had nothing to do with depicting salvation or seen as a violation of his understanding of the sufficient and completed work of Christ on the cross. Now, you've probably heard that, that Paul was wrong in doing that. But my problem is that if Paul has written, at this point, he has written Galatians and he has written Romans, not to mention a number of other things uh, that he's written in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, for Paul to have been as out of fellowship and as had almost a psychotic break to go into the temple and offer sacrifice if that's wrong. And what I mentioned the last time is we have to maybe step back and see that there are elements to this sacrificial system that had a temporal ritual value, period. And it wasn't wrong for a Jew to continue that, to observe that, until the temple was destroyed. And the writer here in Hebrews 9, 9 and 10 doesn't take the opportunity to just flat out condemn any participation whatsoever in the ritual service of Israel, as long as it was understood that it had no real spiritual value. So he says, Sacrifice or offer which cannot make him who performed the service complete in regard to conscience. There was a limitation to these sacrifices. They taught spiritual principles. But remember, a priest in the Levitical system didn't even have to be saved to serve as a priest. He just had to be related to Levi. So it's a teaching mechanism that wasn't based on a, that, that uh, wasn't a real spirituality. And so they did accomplish something limited. Verse 10 says, concerned only, that is, the sacrifices were concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances. That should not be translated fleshly. It's ordinances of the flesh. It's a genitive construction imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, key word that's used here is that word for washings. Every now and then somebody will hone in on this, and it's the Greek word baptismos, the noun baptismos, which refers to a dipping or a washing. And, of course, it's related to the noun that has been brought over into many other languages and become a technical term for baptism. But it's not talking about baptism. It's just a general word to describe these cleansing rituals that occurred in the Levitical system, whether it was the washing of the hands and the feet by the priests or whether it's the washing of the bowls and other temple vessels that were used in these temple rituals. And there's passages in listed to Leviticus 6.28, Mark 7.4, that use this word in terms of just the washing of the uh, vessels in the temple. And the writer of Hebrews is simply making the point that these sacrifices and gifts that are offered that focus on this ritual cleansing do not have a permanent value and cannot permanently solve the problem of sin. That's the issue of the conscience. And that they were imposed until the time of Reformation. And the time of Reformation is a term that focuses on the coming of Messiah to deal with the sin problem. It's the Greek word dikai, or excuse me, it's the Greek word uh, diathosis, diorthosis, which means an improvement, a reformation, or a new order. When something is going to change, that is a dispensational shift that occurs when Christ paid the penalty for sin because all these sacrifices, everything, ultimately focused on him. So that takes us up to where uh, we were the last time. And then there is a contrast starting in verse 11. But Christ. See, the contrast is with the temporal, temporary, limited efficacy of the Levitical sacrifices. And then in contrast, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now, the first thing we have to do is sort of understand what's going on in the uh, just a basic translation. But Christ came as high priest. And this first word that's used there is the Greek verb paragenomai, and it's an aorist upon a participle. Now, that just basically means that it is going to be adverbial, and it depends on, uh, for its, its sense, it's got to be dependent on a main verb. But the main verb isn't listed until you get down into verse 12, but it's brought into or understood to be in verse 11 as well. Christ came, or it's the idea of arrival. Christ arrived on the scene. It's referring to the first advent, the virgin conception, the virgin birth, and the arrival of the second person of the Trinity as the Messiah of Israel. So, But Christ came, and now what we see here is that the action of this participle occurs prior to the main verb. So first he had to come, and then he enters. In verse 12, you see the main verb is down there, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. He entered is the main verb, so he comes has to come first in the incarnation as the high priest, and then he enters the most holy place. So the action of his moving into the role of high priest is related to his entering the most holy place. Now this isn't talking about a place on the earth. This is talking about the heavenly tabernacle, the prototype tabernacle in terms of the dwelling place of God in the heavens. Now, we read, but Christ came as high priest, and then we have an interesting phrase in the Greek, and it's compounded by the fact that uh, we have a textual problem here, and it reads, uh, a high priest of the good things to come. Now, what are the good things to come? And this, use, again, has a participle, but in this case it is an adjectival participle based, again, based on Genomai, which means to come or to come into being, something that has not existed, and now it's going to come into existence. So it's talking about the fact that with this high priestly ministry, something is going to be initiated that was not in effect and is going to be new coming into effect. Now, the question is, when does this occur? Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. And in some of the older manuscripts, it has genomai, but in uh, the majority text and also some other manuscripts, in a widespread attestation, there is, instead of genomai, there's the word mellow, which is a word that is used in the same kind of context to refer to something in the future. Now, if you just hold your place there in verse 11, and you turn over to chapter 10, verse 1, we read, for the law having a shadow of the, what? Of the good things to come. Mellow is, the participial form of mellow is what's used there. Same phrase. So in chapter 10, verse 1, we see the writer talking about the Mosaic law is just a shadow representative of a reality that will come. Now that reality that's coming isn't just talking about first advent salvation accomplished at the cross. Between 9.11 and 10.1, we have 9.28, which is talking about the fact that Christ will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So the, the ultimate culmination of everything is when Christ arrives to establish his kingdom at the second coming. So I believe that the English translation is going to be the same, but the significance of the grammar and the verbiage is different in the Greek. Christ came at the first advent as high priest of the good things to come. The good things to come isn't going to be past tense 
as genomai would be. It's aorist, and that would refer to the cross. But it is a present participle, which is going to throw the good things to come into the second advent, into what comes when Christ returns at the second coming and establishes the new covenant, which was the sacrifice for which was made at the cross. So we've looked at this in the past, and we've seen when Christ died on the cross, that is the sacrifice related to the new covenant. And if Israel had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, then the new covenant would have come into effect at that time. And we spent a lot of time about a year ago going through all the new covenant-related passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, showing that according to the Jewish prophecies, when the new covenant comes into effect, there's a Davidic king on the throne, the people are regenerate and in the land, and uh, the kingdom is established. So we're, none of those things are going on now. There's no Davidic king on the throne. The Jews are not regenerate. And the kingdom, the literal kingdom, has not been established. So the new covenant and the instigation of the new covenant is postponed. Now, people always say, well, what about Paul saying we're ministers of the new covenant? Well, there is an aspect of the cross that is the new, as the new covenant sacrifice that applies in relation to blessing for church age believers. But the new covenant is not, does not, is, is between Israel and the church and God. I mean, is between the house of Israel and the house of Judah and God and the church only participates by virtue of our relationship to the high priest. That's that argument coming out of Hebrews 7 on into the beginning of chapter 8 is Christ is the high priest. Our priesthood, the priesthood of believers in the church age, is related to his high priesthood. So that's on one side of the of the equation. Remember, in any covenant, you have one party entering into a contract with another party. Well, we're not, we don't benefit on the one side because that's the contract is with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We're not Jewish. We participate by virtue of our identification with Christ and his high priestly ministry, and our priesthood is derivative of that. And so when that is established, that's when we come back with Christ as the bride of Christ, and we are going to rule and reign with him, and that's what we see in in the book of Revelation. So Christ coming as high priest of the good things to come that focuses attention on away from the cross. Because in the next clause it says, with the greater, he came as high priest of the good things to come, second advent, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Now, that's talking about when he comes as high priest. it's, It's when he goes into heaven, that's when he takes over and begins to fully function as high priest. You know, Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And his ministry as a king doesn't begin until the second coming, when he returns as king of kings and lord of lords. His ministry as the prophet, the Deuteronomy 18 reference, that a prophet greater than Moses would come, that was the primary thrust of his first advent ministry. That doesn't mean that there weren't elements of the other two, but that's the primary thrust. He's offering the kingdom, but he's not the king. But he's offering the kingdom, but he doesn't receive the throne until the second coming. So there's elements of all in each dimension, but there's a primary emphasis. So prophet is a primary emphasis at his period of the incarnation. His high priestly ministry is a primary thrust today at the right hand of the Father, and then his royal Kingship is what goes into effect at the second coming when he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. So the high priestly ministry goes into high gear when he enters the more complete tabernacle not made with hands, not of this creation. This tells us that there is a heavenly dwelling place of God. It's interesting in Hebrews 
It's mentioned, it's called the uh, tabernacle. In the book of Revelation, it's called the temple of God. Why is there that distinction? Because in, I think it's because in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is making the comparison and analogy between the ritual that existed in the tabernacle in the early days under Moses. And so it correlates to what Jesus does in the heavens because the function of the high priest is the same whether you're in the tabernacle or the temple. And it doesn't make a significant difference other than in terms of making the connection of tabernacle ritual because a few things changed when you got into the uh, first temple period. So Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. It is the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly prototype that Moses saw. God revealed to him that heavenly vision, that blueprint, based on the way things were in heaven. Now we come to verse 12. Not with the blood of bulls and goats. Now, verse 12 flows directly out of verse 11. If you've got a King James or New King James Bible, I don't know what happens in the New American Standard. I think New American Standard may may end verse 11 with a period. But they're one sentence, 11 and 12 are one sentence, and the main verb is down in the middle of verse 12, he entered. And so you have this negation here that he doesn't enter the heavenly tabernacle with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is another very important passage to take apart grammatically to understand the significance here. It is contrasting Jesus' entry into the heavenly temple with the high priest, the human high priest, the Levitical high priest's entry into the earthly temple. So there's the contrast. Jesus into the heavenly temple, the human high priest, the Aaronic high priest entering into the earthly temple that the high priest entered on the basis of the sacrifice of goats and calves. Now, when did this happen? This happens on the Day of Atonement, as I reminded you earlier. He enters in on the Day of Atonement. The first thing that the high priest would do was to take a bull, and this bull could be of any age from eight days on. And usually it was about a year old, and so the term calves could relate, not with the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and calves rather, but the goats refer to the taking of the two goats in the ritual related to the scapegoat. So the writer of Hebrews is just summarizing the taking of the sacrifices, the sin offerings, the whole burnt offerings, and the scapegoat offerings on the Day of Atonement, that the just as the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on the basis of a sacrifice of the sin offering and the the burnt offering, Jesus, in contrast, enters in by means of his own blood. And so we have the phrase in in the Greek, dia, uh, plus the genitive, which indicates means. It indicates... It's the same thing that we have in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of faith, but through faith. That is the intermediate means of entry. So he enters not with his blood. That English preposition with sounds like he's has it in accompaniment with him, like he's either carrying it in a pail or he still has it in his body. So that's a that's the New King James with is just a poor translation of this kind of a of a uh, genitive statement. It's through his own blood, which would mean since blood stands for death, we can translate this not with the death of goats and calves, but through his own death, he entered the most holy place uh, once. For all, and this takes us back to the 
issue the uh, instructions in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 3 and 5. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering, ram for a burnt offering. And in Leviticus 16, 5, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, when we read, it's not he enters with his own blood. He enters the most holy place once for all. This is the Greek word f hapax. Now, this is the Greek word hapax, which means alone, and it's intensified with the preposition epi. So, when you bring them together, it's f hapax, and this is uh, the root there. Hapax is where we get a technical term called a hapax legomena. Every now and then that'll slip out of my mouth. And that means, uh, refers to a Greek word or Hebrew word that's only used one time. And that's always a bit of a challenge when you're studying the text and you have a word that's only used one time. Well, how do you find what it means? Because word meaning comes from word usage. And if you only have one example of a word being used uh, anywhere, it's a little more difficult to ascertain the meaning. That's a core idea is once, and this word is used four times in the New Testament in relationship to the completed work of Christ on the cross. Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So that death to sin is final, it's complete, it's sufficient. Uh, Hebrews 7.27 says that in relationship to Christ that he does not need to daily offer sacrifices like those high priests, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did, that is, this is what Christ did once for all when he offered up himself. And then we have our current passage in Hebrews 9.12 and then Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is complete and final. So verse 12 says that it's not through the blood of goats and calves. Through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now this is another key word that we have to take a look at. It is a Greek word, heurisko. And it is an arismittal participle. This is just lo- the grammar here is just loaded with these participles, but the participles have to be understood in light of the verbs that they're related to. And he enters, that's your main verb, because he had ab- already obtained eternal redemption. The aorist participle there precedes the action of the main verb. When you have an aorist participle, no matter what the tense of the main verb is, an aorist participle always precedes the action of the main verb. So that tells us that he is able to enter the most holy place in heaven because he had already obtained eternal redemption. And the word, therefore, to obtain is the Greek verb heurisko, meaning to find or to discover, and it's used idiomatically for the idea of bringing something to completion. So he has obtained eternal redemption. He has he's accomplished this objectively. This is again describing that first category of redemption that I talked about on Sunday, which is, and I should have put that chart back in here as a review, which talks about the objective payment of the price in relation to the judicial demand of God. And we can call that judicial payment, that Jesus Christ pays the penalty so that it is completely paid for everybody, unbeliever, believer, all sins are paid for objectively by Christ on the cross. And this is the idea that is here, that he had eternal redemption because he had obtained eternal redemption. And so this can't be lost. Now that takes us on into... Verse 13, for if, now there's going to be an explanation. Now this is again is very in, interesting and important passage. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Now what's interesting here is this construction. 
he says for if, and he uses a first-class condition in the Greek. Now, in Greek, you can express an if clause uh, four different ways based on the grammar. And each of these has a slightly different significance. If you use one construction, it means if, and the speaker is assuming what he is saying to be true. If you use a, the second construction, second class condition, that is assuming that your condition is false. Uh, for example, when um, on the first class condition, when Satan is addressing Jesus in the wilderness, he says, if you are the son of God, he uses a first class condition, and so he's uh, recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, second class condition, if, and we're not assuming it to be true. Third class condition is the one we normally think of, if, maybe you will, or maybe you won't. That's like First uh, John 1, 9, for if we confess our sins. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But when you do, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, this is a first-class condition. That means the writer is making an affirmative statement that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, that is, that which was ritually unclean and unsanctified, would sanctify or set apart, and it was good for setting apart the purification or cleansing of the flesh. And the word there for cleansing is the Greek word katharotes, it can be translated cleanness or purity, purification or cleansing in a ritual sense. So he is recognizing that the blood of the sacrifices did something. It wasn't just symbolic. There was an actual cleansing that took place ritually, and it had a value that would only last for a year until the next day of atonement. So it's not, it's not permanent. So he mentions th- three things. He mentions the blood of the bulls for the sin offerings and the goats. And then third, the ashes of a heifer. Now, we haven't talked about the red heifer offering at all in all of our study of the tabernacle. Tonight I want to just wrap up by going over the red heifer offering. Let's turn back to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 19. Numbers 19. Again, this is a sacrifice that reinforces the teaching of a blood sacrifice being necessary in order to provide ritual cleansing for the people so that they can come into the presence of God. It doesn't mean that they're saved. It doesn't mean that they're not saved. It is ritual. It's related to the formal worship of God within the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, Numbers chapter 19 describes the ritual that occurred with the purification of the what we call the red heifer offering. A heifer is a young cow not quite three years of age, that has not yet had a calf, a young cow that has not yet had a calf. And this, the red heifer was to be examined, make sure that, the, that she was without spot or blemish. And then it was to be slaughtered and burned outside by the gate, not slaughtered at the bronze altar, but outside by the gate. So this is different than any of the other sacrifices. The red heifer offering would be slaughtered and completely burned. Everything wasn't to be disemboweled and have the intestines and everything cleaned and some of the organs used for different purposes, but everything was to be completely burned, and then the ashes were going to be mixed with spring water, and this liquid made from the ashes of the red heifer would then be used in a purification ceremony. So what in the world is this all about? Well, to understand that, we have to look at the context in Numbers, beginning in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So we're just going to take a quick review of what happens in these chapters. In Numbers chapter 13, we have the story of the spies who are sent into the land of Canaan. And remember, they are told that they're to see how 
they are going to have victory over the Canaanites. They're not sent in to see if they're going to have uh, victory over the Canaanites. And they go in to Canaan and they see the fortified cities and they see giants in the land and they're overwhelmed by the size and they see the, the numbers of the people are large and they come back and 10 of the 12 spies says, there's no way we can do this. And the other two said, well, God didn't tell us to see if we could do it. God said to go check it out, do a recon, because he has already given it to us. And because the people followed the ten spies who had no faith, rather than Joshua and Caleb who did trust God, then that whole generation was disciplined. They were not going to be allowed to go into the land, and they would have to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until that generation died and their children came to maturity, and they could then enter into the land. So chapters 13, chapter 14 deal with the disobedience of the nation. And at the end of chapter 14, God announces the judgment on this generation and that they would all die before they enter the land. What we see here is a Uh, major emphasis on death in the next few chapters. But some of them don't believe what God says, and so they try to go into battle in their own strength in verses 39 to 45, and they are soundly defeated. Then we come to chapter 16, and there is the rebellion of Korah, who is a Levite, but he associates with two non-Levites, Dathan and Abiram. And they are uh, the sons of Eliab and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So they are Reubenites. They are not Levites. They are not priests. And they engage in a conspiracy and rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And there's about 250 leaders of the congregation that are associated with them. And so there is a challenge that they bring to the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and Moses uh, handles them with a tremendous amount of grace, even though he is extremely angry with them. And he tells them that they are to come back the next day and bring their censers with fire, and that God is going to uh, show who is right. And as we go through the episode, what happens is that these 250 leaders... And the key leaders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their families are all standing, told to stand outside their tents, and God is going to, and everybody else has to stand back, and God is going to judge, uh, judge them, and Moses says it's going to be done in such a way that it's clear that it's not me, it's God, and if, and the earth is going to open up and swallow them, and that's exactly what happened at that instant. God causes an earthquake, it swallows up, Dathan, Abiram, Korah, the families, and the 250 leaders are all killed by God at that instant. So there is death. Then the people come back the next day. You would think that having had that empirical episode with God's justice, that the next day they would be a little bit humbled, but they're not. They come back complaining against Moses and Aaron the next day. See, when you're in a position of leadership and you have to deal with arrogant people, that's all you have to put up with is complaint, and they're never justified. It's just complaint after complaint. So they come back the next day complaining against Moses and Aaron, saying, it's your fault. You killed all those people, and we want justice. And so then God tells Moses that he is going to Destroy the entire congregation in verse 45. And Moses says, tells Aaron to go take a censer, put fire in, put that in the tabernacle to make atonement for the people because God is sending a plague among them. And 14,700 people are killed that day. So a little more than 15,000 are killed in the whole episode. So again, we have tremendous amount of death that takes place. Then chapter 17 we have an episode where God is going to demonstrate that Aaron is the high priest that he has chosen and that they are to only allow Aaron to serve as the high priest. This is the episode with Aaron's rod that is going to sprout the almond leaves and almond blossoms and almonds. And so this takes place, somebody from each of the tribes, and they each put their staffs 
into the tabernacle the next morning they get up and Aaron's rod has budded. So what God is going to show is that only his man, Aaron, and his descendants could serve as the high priest. Chapter 18 describes the duties of the high priest and the Levites. And there is a warning that if anybody else serves as a priest, then God will take their life. They will die. And so you have this whole thing of death that's gone on. Death and death and death. And all these people have died. And so the nation is is not cleansed. They are now ceremonially impure because they have touched these dead bodies. And I'm going to skip past chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, describes the ritual of the red heifer offering. And verse 11 Immediately following it says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days, and he shall purify himself with the water, that's the water that's made from the ashes of the red heifer, he shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. Now, he doesn't just jump from the description of the ritual with the red heifer offering, verses 1 through 10, to a totally unrelated subject. Up to chapter 19, we have all this discipline and death that's occurred. And so many have died that you have, the, the people are all ceremonially unclean because they have touched the dead body. So there has to be a, a purification for the whole nation. And so this makes this a unique sacrifice to purify the, temp, uh, the tabernacle and to purify the people within this context of death. So it's a unique sacrifice. It has elements of a sacrifice, but it's not slaughtered at the bronze altar. It's slaughtered outside the camp, and the thrust is purification. The cow was to be unblemished and not have had a yoke put on her and no defect, according to 19.2. Uh, it's not stated who actually sacrifices the heifer, but the uh, blood is brought to Eliezer in verse 3 who then takes the blood with his finger and sprinkles the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting in order to purify it. Then the red heifer is completely burned, the hide, the flesh, the blood, the refuse. 19.5-6 describes this. And then cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet are burned with it. Now, the only time you have only other time you have cedar, hyssop, and scarlet material mentioned is in the purification in the non-sacrificial rite for the lepers. And so this shows that this is a purification ceremony. Following that, the priest would then wash his clothes and bathe completely in water. And then the priest was considered to be unclean until evening, according to verse 7. In verse 8, Another priest who was clean would take the first priest, the high priest's clothes, and burn them completely. And then another unnamed man would come up who was clean, that is sanctified in terms of tabernacle worship, who would gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place and mix them with water for the purification ceremony. So, again, the the red heifer ceremony shows God's provision to cleanse the people of of sin and anything related to it and anything that causes that breach of fellowship with God. God provides the complete solution. And there is recognition that this actually does accomplish something. And so Hebrews 9.13, the writer says, If... And it did the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, that is the ceremonially unclean, those who could not approach God in worship in the tabernacle, sanctifies. It would cleanse or purify them for the, or set them apart for the purification of the flesh. It's just external. It just has to do with ritual, and then let me finish this thought, and we'll come back and look at this again next time in verse 14. How much more? This is a, this is what's called an a fortiori argument, or an argument from the lesser to the greater. In Hebrew, is called a Calvahomer argument, 
And what it argues is if this lesser situation is true, then how much greater the other will be, how much more this other will be. If A is true, how much more then will B be true? And so if the blood of bulls and goats had some limited value in cleansing, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we'll get into that next time to see how this cleansing of the conscience from dead works works and then move into the 15th verse, which is where it really starts to get interesting in relation to his role as mediator of the new covenant and paying the price of sin, the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to a greater realization of of all that you have done in working out our salvation and how this should direct our attention, not simply to the past, but also to the future in terms of its final uh, fulfillment and enactment in the new covenant when Jesus Christ returns, that we might live today in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.